I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to Far-Fetched Fables, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good morning. Good afternoon. Good evening. Wherever you are, wherever you're listening from, welcome to Far-Fetched Fables. So here we have show number 11. I have some great stories for you today, so sit back, relax, make sure your favourite beverage is close to hand. Let's listen to some stories. First up, we're going to hear Lost Son by Maurice Broadus. Mr. Broadus has written hundreds of short stories, essays, novellas and articles. His dark fiction has been published in numerous magazines, anthologies and websites, and he's the co-editor of Streets of Shadow and the Dark Faith anthology series. He's also the author of the urban fantasy trilogy Knights of Breton Court. He's been a teaching artist for over five years, teaching creative writing to students of all ages, and you can see links to his site on the Triple F webpage, of course. The story is read for you by a very interesting man named Gregory Austin. Gregory, after doing various things, now flourishes as a freelance writer for numerous internet comedy sites, and he also books gigs locally as a voice actor. When he's not busy polishing the finer points of his novel or saving the world from injustice, Gregory enjoys arguing semantics with his partner and two beloved cats, Nala and Zelda. So, take a listen to Lost Son by Maurice Broadus. Lost Son by Maurice Brodus I will make my arrows drunk with blood while my sword devours flesh, the blood of the slain and the captives, the heads of the enemy leaders. Deuteronomy 32.42 Favor us with a tale, storyteller, Ganamanin asked in his way of implying a threat if disobeyed. His lanky frame slumped in his high back seat, Still unused to the power at his command, the celebration of their latest trade agreement had gone well. Soon, more treasure would be flowing to them, ensuring Wagadugu's place as the pride of the continent. The central fire roared before them. The tall flames danced wildly in the night, holding the Ghana's court of counselors, ministers, interpreters, and treasurers in rapt attention. The scarlet-robed Griot approached. Jobo had served as the village's memory for almost a generation. Even now he had three young men undergoing the rites of passage to become the village's next griot, to preserve the heritage of ears. Kumbai Sele had grown fat with her wealth over the years, now serving as the capital of the land. 
Though small of stature, Jobo moved with a lithe grace that bore a near-regal air. He nodded first to the Ghana's advisor, Okamfo, then to Ghana Menin himself. "'Is there a particular tale you would like to hear?' Jobo asked. "'Tell us a tale of the first ones. How we used to be,' Ghana Menin said. The descendants of the Hamith, the sons of Kush, traveled toward the west and crossed the Nile. Jobo started without missing a beat. All his tales began with a recitation of their origins, providing him time to recall the stories. Some, the Nubians, the Beju, and the Zaj, turned between the east and the west. The rest followed the setting sun. They were the first ones, the original settlers of Ouagadougou. There were 144 Ghanas leading up to the great Ghana Menin. But there was a time before Ghana's, a time before the Saniki clans united. You want to tell us of Dinga Cease? Okamfo asked. Jobo didn't glance toward him, feeling the bristling waves of hate emanating from him. If you will permit me, Jobo asked the Ghana, please do so. I know so little about him. Tell me of his first adventure. I don't know about his first but this is the earliest tale that I know. It began with a raid. The women shrieked when they heard the crash through the underbrush. They had been down the river to collect water for the village. Tales of the black-hooded raiders swooping down on caravans, stealing anything of value, and kidnapping young women, especially girls, had spread far and wide. Things had gotten of such grave concern that most of the village's warriors accompanied any transport of salt or gold. All that remained were the old, the young, the infirm, and the women. Never had the women been bothered along the short trek to the river. However, though so close to the village, they knew their screams would go unheeded. If only they could make it to the clearing, within eye level of the village, surely a watchman would see them. Their hopes died as the men overran them. No one knew much about the raiders. Some feared they were agents of the Kushites to the west. Or worse, wandering Berbers, who knew no allegiance to any village, save their own necks. Not much larger than the women, the raiders cut them off along the trail that led to Genjano. They bayed, little more than jackals. Their squat bodies scuttled about in something approaching triumphant glee. Their awkward musculature made every movement a lumbering effort. Soft, the smallest one circled a woman, taking long, exaggerating sniffs, though still skittish as a monkey. His black, open-faced hood flopped against the back of his head, revealing flat features that only rendered him more monstrous than his slight bulk would have allowed. Fun! A lean figure brushed up against another woman, relishing the startled yelp his presence elicited. Red inside. The largest of the three commanded intense, fear-filled stares from the lot, his fellow raiders included. The brute raked his gnarled nail along her face, drawing blood. No, we take, we take. No time for games. The lean one rushed to him, holding back his arm. The brute stared at him, then back at the girl, before shrugging him off. No, not all have to go. Some play. The brute's lascivious stare sent a shiver through the girl. One of the women proved more than the small man could handle. Wriggling to loosen his grip, she reached behind her and clawed at the man's eye. She elbowed him in his belly while he grasped at his wound. Turning to face him, she kicked him in the groin, sending him to the ground. The brute lost interest in the woman he held and snatched the feisty one from behind. No one knew what to make of the figure who stepped through the underbrush. A young man, barely a man at that, with a thinly muscled frame burned dark by the sun. A wild man of a sort, he trampled along, as if oblivious to the scene, yet making enough noise to draw everyone's attention. His curiosity, alerted by the screams, led him there. That and the scent of bloodlust that wafted along the air like the stink of a week-old kill. His wide eyes took in the scene with a willful nonchalance. He cut a striking figure with his small nose ring and brass armlet. 
The left half of his body was tattooed, his leg and shoulder in the pattern of lines, like a maze, the pattern broken by dots. He wore a belted loincloth, a dagger's hilt jutted from one side, the belt mainly supporting a short, heavy sword. Using a spear as his walking stick, he paused, staring at the horizon, not making eye contact with any of the raiders. Carry on, stranger. It's healthier to mind your own business. The lean one took a step in his direction. He turned to them, perturbed at the intrusion into his thoughts. Come to make sport of women? Surely they cannot make for fair game. Come, play with me. Demonic caterwauling, anticipating their thrill at the possibility of an easy kill, raised their blood. They charged him, yet he stood his ground. He spun his spear above his head in a dancing whirl that brought it to bear and slashed the first man. Blood oozed from a gash in his side, cautioning the men to be wary of the range of his weapon. They spread out to encircle him, but he didn't wait for their simultaneous assault. Listening to the footfalls of the lean man behind him, anticipating his placement, the stranger jabbed him with the blunt end of his spear. The pop of splintering teeth sent the man sprawling to the ground. The boy-man pivoted, the blade of his spear carving a precise strike across the man's throat. The man clutched the frothing rictus of his neck, choking on his blood as he fell. The boy-man sprung up, glared wildly, searching for the man's companions. Ignoring the women's frantic terror, he spied a large black bird. He heard the snarl before he saw the man. The man hurled a dagger at him, to kill him at best. Throw him off balance and into the path of the second dagger he'd drawn, at worst. The boy-man ducked, stepping into the stride of the charging man to catch his wrist. Wrenching it with his left hand, his spear still in his right, he snapped the bone loudly, driving the small man to his knees. The boy-man snatched the dagger from him and plunged it into his chest. The man crumpled, though the boy-man had already turned his back to him in an effort to guard against the brute. The brute had retreated to near the women, preparing to use them as shields if need be. The brute, though twice the boy-man's size, must have sensed something about him, an untamed spirit, a warrior's fury. The boy-man let loose a frightful cry of his own. The brute brandished his dagger, the size of a small sword to anyone else, and leapt. The boy-man slid to the ground and drew his spear up. Off balance, the brute impaled himself on it, his momentum carrying them into a tumble. The brute uttered a death scream as the boy-man, now astride him, plunged the spear into his belly and ripped it to the brute's groin. The boy-man stood, his arms streaked with blood, his hands frozen to the spear. Studying the crimson-soaked dust all around him, he brought the spear to the ready at the sound of the approaching soft footfalls. Warrior, a gentle voice said. He turned violently, blood frenzy still in his eyes. She continued in a soothing tone. Come with us to our village. Let us celebrate your arrival and rejoice in your victory. Many will sing of your deeds. The black bird regained his attention. Feeling its withering gaze, almost human in its hatred, he watched as it took off on large black wings. Zhen Zhenou was a gem lost within the jungle confines, a mysterious juxtaposition of past and encroaching present. Surrounded by rice fields, a levee for the pasture, and a deep basin, it was a mix of huts and great houses. Though some of its roundhouses were constructed with tough foundations, the puddled mud stood in stark contrast to the cylindrical bricks of the city walls. The palisaded walls, tall and proud, sealed the village from the rest of the world. A swarm of huts enclosed structures of stone, as if the huts settled alongside an older, abandoned settlement. The boy-man had traveled far and wide, and though the village reminded him of cities that he saw in Egypt, the town's architecture seemed older. Truth be told, the rumors of treasure that outshone all the neighboring nations also lured him here. The raiders seek new territory. They too suffer from the drought that plagues much of the kingdom. A fat-faced man with postulant features pronounced soon upon their arrival, with a bulbous body like a tree frog. A band of gold girded his fat neck. He looked more wealthy merchant than war chief. Beside him stood a fine woman of dignified air, 
one who had to have been quite a beauty in her youth. The concerned onlookers waited to hear something to allay their concerns, but their war chief was too much the politician to give them any real answers. It makes no sense, the boy man spoke up. There is plenty of good land only a few miles north of here. You speak manned. I speak many languages, the brooding boy man said. Your words ring with truth. They think us vulnerable because our people is divided into small clans. It is said that someday a man will rise and unite the main clans of the Suniki. Then we will be a force to be reckoned with. The man stopped and studied the boy man. Where are my manners? I am Ghana Afur, and this lovely creature is my sister, Ermine. I am Dinga, of the clan Cease. Cease. I am not familiar with that clan. I am Nokian. Whispers rippled through the fathered throng. Fresh interest quickened the Ghana's gaze. Dinga knew the rumors that spread about his people. They were a barbaric, warlike tribe. Intelligent, but uncivilized. Ancient and proud, they kept their old ways, and their secrets, to themselves. Noke is on the far side of the desert. Few venture across it and live to tell the tale. What brings you to our land? I ask not from suspicion, but curiosity. Be he scout or spy, Dinga knew he wondered. Nothing. I simply wish to prove my mettle to Anyame, and see what the many lands and people have to offer. Anyame? The god above all others? What say you to that, Baida? Ganaafer asked. All eyes turned to the high priest. He stood a head taller than the tallest man, skin dark as tree bark. His orange robe seemed to glow against him. The crowd parted as he neared. Dinga failed to see the source of the reverence that they showed him. The priest adorned himself like a woman. Two snakes painted in black on either arm, coiled along the length of his arms. Serpentine bracelets of gold dangled from each wrist, crowned with a high cap decorated with gold. Wrapped in a turban of fine cotton, a necklace of human teeth circled his long neck. The figure circled Dinga once, though Dinga stared straight at the Ghana without acknowledging the priest. Fox-faced with far too crafty eyes, he met Dinga's frank countenance. Such a savage deserves such a savage god. Dinga Cease remained silent. Baida, that is no way to treat a guest, especially one that has already done so great a service to our village. Come, Dinga Cease, sup with us. Enjoy all that our village has to offer. Ghana Afur offered his hand, but before Dinga could move, all eyes turned to the high priest. Baida's body jerked like a large bird caught in the throes of strangulation. The gathered villagers drew back. A wave of fear washed over them. He strode in a large circle around Dinga and the Ghana, his spastic rhythms increasing when he neared Dinga. He reached into the folds of his robe and removed a small rod with what appeared to be beads tied to it. He yanked at the bag on his hip, then upended it at Dinga's feet. Quite the show, though Dinga remained unimpressed. The warrior's arrival is a powerful omen. Our village will go through a time of testing. We must have faith, and we will not only survive, but we shall know prosperity greater than before, if we cling to the old ways. Show Dinga cease to a hut. Let him enjoy the best that our village has to offer, Ganafur said. It's best not to face times of testing on an empty belly. Dinga followed the Ghana's retinue, first catching the high priest's gaze, then turning his back to him. The short hairs along the nape of Dinga's neck stood on end. Dinga held his sword before him, lost in his meditations. Having cleaned and sharpened the blade, he held it aloft in front of him, knowing it, feeling its heft. Learning its delicate balance, he taught his muscles to think of it as an extension of his arm. His dagger lay to the left of him, sharp and pointing towards the hut entrance. His spear keeled to his right with an easy grasp. With them, he always had the trapping of a home, no matter where he rested his head. He knew who approached his hut long before she made her presence known. What are you doing? she asked, entering the hut as if it were her own. 
I am resting in the presence of Onyame, Dinga said, his eyes still closed. I am not interrupting you, am I? If a warrior could be disturbed so easily, he needn't be a warrior, Dinga said. I wanted to thank you personally for my rescue. What rescue? You seem to have your assailant where you wanted. Still, I thought you would enjoy this. He opened his eyes to see her carrying in a bowl of fruit and a carafe from Magana's table. Dinga glanced up, inscrutable as ever. He had only seen fifteen summers before setting out to prove himself. The fairer sex remained as much a mystery to him as any culture he visited. He kept to a code, hating the distraction of women. They interfered with his dedication, his worship, the art of combat. Bayanyame, his voice trailed off. I am Ifriquia, of the Kante clan. How many clans are there? The major sneaky clans are the Kante, the artisans and metalworkers, and the Drame and the Scylla, who see to the agriculture, fishing, and animal husbandry. Maybe it's time to add a fourth. Cease, the ruling clan. You shouldn't joke. Baida, too, speaks of their needing to be a ruling clan. What clan is Baida? He is a foreigner, like you. From Kaw-Kaw. Kaw-Kaw, the land of magicians? The pharaoh has chosen many from Kaw-Kaw for his personal court. Bah! His dismissive snort belied the fascination he held for the city of Kaw-Kaw. He heard tales of its gleaming cities, dark ways, and darker gods. His heart longed to one day see it, yet he feared it all the same. Still, he was young, and he had time. And what stirs your heart for Onyame? Dinga took his knife and scratched a symbol in the earthen floor. Ifriquia stooped to study it over his shoulder. His reedy frame leaned to the side of Scrawny, as if he had been sickly. His round face, beguiling in its innocent air, hid hints of mischief in his grin. He who roars so loud that the nations are struck with terror, the name above all names, honor, bravery, loyalty, these are virtuous traits. Honorable combat is my worship. That sounds... Barbaric? Simple? Yet I know who I am, and what I am called to do. Fulfilling who I am is how I draw close to him. And where would Anyame take you for your next trial? I plan to return well north of Kush in Egypt, into the hinterlands and beyond, before returning home. Why? My grandfather wandered to the four winds before settling among his people. He called it the Rite of Anyame. He took part in many a battle, faced many a beast, before proving his worth as a leader of a people. Is that what you plan to do? Lead a people? Dinga smiled a wolfish smile. The fire was warm, the food filling, and the wine soothing. Despite his wishes, eventually he had to sleep to prepare himself for the next day. But when he slept, he dreamt of death and dying comrades. Comrades betrayed. And when he awoke, his friends were no less dead. The next day, the Ghana was found dead. There was no talk of a new Ghana. Ermin's son, though destined to be the next Ghana, was only months old. Baida himself had cut his umbilical cord with an arrow to ensure that he would be a good hunter. Until he came of age, Ermin allowed Baida to assume the role of his uncle. Noting Ermin's weakness, Dinga watched all with a detached amusement. The time of testing has begun, Baida announced, preparing the village for the ceremonies that would accompany his burial. Per the old ways, the villagers interred Ghana of fur with food, clothes, and cooking pots the things he would need in the next world, with the funeral lasting several days. As divine minister, harborer of the protective powers of the spirit world, Baida oversaw the ceremonies. The high priest was seen as the spirit's representative. In exchange, he was protected by the spirits and could make use of their powers. The Ghana has passed over. He has joined with our ancestor spirits, but remains present with us. May we continue to benefit from his wisdom. Ifriquia led the women in their dance about the spewing pyres of the central flame. The warriors gave voice, yelling as they pounded the drums. Their grim drumbeat, a dull throb with a near-sinister aspect, stirred the ladies to swaying. The drum mutterings increased, building in intensity until they swept the ladies up in their contagious rhythms. 
The ladies gyrated and pranced, oblivious to the stairs, caught up in the spiritual ecstasy of their dance. Dinga's eyes followed her every movement. Only then did Baida begin his harsh, guttural intonations. His peacock feathers clung to his back, leering over each shoulder. He appeared almost regal in his high headdress. The drum ceremony continued. Baida moved to the uncomfortable rhythms, though, surely a trick of the dim light, he seemed like an old man in the fire's lurid glow. Ancient and gnarled, Baida appeared ravaged by years under an unceasing sun and wind. Withered hands cast herbs and totems into the flames, changing their hue to the delight of the onlookers. Ermine took her place beside Baida, though her attentions grew distracted. Dinga tracked her eyes. Baida eyed her daughter. Despite Ifriquia's youth, his eyes, greedy and grim, locked on her with a mad tinge of lust dancing in them. Dinga did not acknowledge the song sang on his behalf, comparing the number of his superior kills to those of Ghana Afur. He had no time for the politics that masked civilization. It was another game people felt they had to play to further separate themselves from their true natures. Still, the songs flattered him. The warriors soon gathered, a stirring formation before Baida, in order to receive his blessing. Go! I will secure a good hunt! The men left, confident in their presumed success. Baida turned to Dinga. If you will, come talk with me later. Baida held his audience in a dome pavilion, a massive round structure near the rear of the village, off to itself, yet large enough for three families. A grove separated it from the rest of the village. Behind it, several wooden figures lined the path. Totems, like a shrine of carved figures. Short, squat depictions of men and women with exaggerated features of long faces and broad, flat noses. Their sagging breasts, long necks, and capped heads seemed carved from hate. Their hollow eyes, more alive than not, stared with lifelike intensity from their wooden sockets. You wish to meet with me? Dinga asked. A mocking tone marked his being perturbed by the odd formality of the wish to talk. I've heard tales, young Dinga, of some wild young men, the sons of certain chiefs who indulged all manner of extravagances, Baida said in a cold whisper. An air of ancient calm settled on him, though his fox face was still a mask of deceit. Indulgence makes one soft, Dinga said. Then you've heard the tales. Only offering comment. Please continue. These young men drew lots from some among their brethren to go explore the desert parts. A foolhardy quest. You see, the desert is a mysterious and powerful place, where arrogant young men may quickly find themselves in over their heads. Then their baser instincts are forced to take over. Friends turn on friends as a matter of survival until only one remains alive to tell the tale. Bide across the distance between them, his eyes locked on Dinga's. Without thought, his hand brushed against the hilt of his knife at Bida's approach. It is a blessing and a curse to do whatever it takes to survive. They were a band. He was their chieftain, though he never asked for it. He was not the oldest nor the biggest, but they admired him just the same. He failed them, Dinga whispered. No, he lived, Bida paused. You are a child of fate. You have the eyes of one who has seen much, despite your few years. The Sneaky's lost son. I could build a mighty kingdom on your brave back. I don't have the stomach for politics, or scheming my way to power. Dinga's words carried the sting of disdain. A crestfallen look flashed on Bida's face before he turned away. Still, he salvaged his spurn offer as best he could. You have the need to adventure. It's written all over you. Best not to tarry in one place for too long, then. Follow your heart and go your own way. The implicate threat, Maska's permission, was not lost on Dinga, though he made no attempt to match wits and intrigue with Baida. Though his nature was to be suspicious, he trusted in one fact, that no matter their color or culture, people were people. Self-serving and ever true to their baser nature. Where do you think the raiders come from? Why do you ask? A wise man does not go out of his way to stir up trouble. Wise words indeed. 
The Berber nomads raged toward the north, not quite to Kush, though east of the Bantu. Then perhaps I shall visit the villages to the south, Dinga said. A good decision. Dinga shaved his head with his dagger, his rough scraping aided only by a bowl of water. Bloodshed and violence were all that he knew. The causes mattered a little, but the means remained the same. He had little use for the trappings of civilization, the lie of man. Barbarism was the natural state of man, so he concerned himself with life's fundamentals. Food, shelter, worship. Ifriquia entered his hut, then stood at the doorway in silence. Pleasure. You can come in, Dinga said. I don't want to interrupt your meditations again, Ifriquia said. I was not in prayer, merely testing my blade. You have a strange god, with strange demands. We all walk in our own ways, Dinga continued to clean his blade. They say that there are prophecies that say Onyame would someday take flesh and become the rightful Ghana. Dinga smirked. Did your Ghana die without a son? It doesn't matter. It is the sister of the Ghana who provides the heir to the throne. I am Ermine's eldest daughter, the future Ghana's sister. What of Baida? What of an old man with useless bits? He's neither old nor useless. The shamans of Ka Ka are a powerful lot, more spirit than man if you believe the tales. Shape-changers who speak tongues so ancient that only the shadows understand them. Ifriquia approached. Dinga glared, more aloof than malicious, as if he'd forgotten the emotions of friendliness. He struggled to recall the expected response. The people whisper that you are destined to rule. It is not yet my time. It is mine. She stood close enough for him to feel her heat. It occurred to him that he had never seen so dazzling a beauty. Her unruly locks held at bay by her slight headdress. Her eyes, brown as fresh timber, matched her perfect ebony body, full, enticing red lips. She was strong in all the right ways, an independent spirit to match his own. His eyes smoldered with longing for her. In that moment, a warrior's madness swept him up in desire. Blood pumped hotly through his veins, stirring his untamed soul. They engaged in combat of a different sort. I must leave, Dinga said. Ifriquia still coiled in his embrace. She rolled over to face him. Where do your travels take you now? North. The Soniki had entrusted themselves to his care. Dinga could not simply abandon them. He couldn't betray their trust. Dinga found the raiders quickly enough. He knew of the trader's caravan trafficking in salt, daggers, silk, jewelry, fine cloth. The trader's route was from Makrab to Wagadugu, following a simple path starting into Hurt, near the north. Coming down through Shumaza, the trail went south and inland, parallel to the coast, then round the southeast, through Adagust to Janjano. The raiders weren't attempting to hide their trail much. Either they didn't think much of the Saniki people, or they trusted too much in the protection of their master. Sweat dripped from Dinga's body, but he remained motionless, save repositioning his grip on his spear. He ignored both the stifling heat and the cloying dampness, waiting with the patience of a... This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. 
plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Poise spider. The raiders, small fumbling creatures, turned upwind, then vanished into the bushes. Still, he waited. Then an uneasy thing stirred in his stomach, triggered by the sudden oppressive silence. He held his breath, not sure if he actually heard anything. Again he scanned the stillness of the forest trail. He moved through the dense underbrush with the practiced ease of a hunter. His heart shot to his throat. A wild scream cut through the jungle. Puffing a curse under his breath, Dinga raced toward the source in an instant. Instinct drew his hand toward his sword's hilt. He reveled in the opportunity to fight with both weapons. He brushed back branches with a spear, then withdrew along the dense foliage. He paused, meeting with a slight shaking of leaves. The bushes parted and the raiders came into view. They carried a woman between them. Light dappled through the leaves. Large globules of sweat beaded along his brow. With no wind against his face, he took a more comfortable grip of his spear. A few heartbeats later, he bounded from the bushes. The first raider dropped his end of the prize, quickly bringing a shard of sharpened bone to bear. Dinga disarmed him with a casual flick of his spear. The scrape of metal on bone tore through the air. Enjoying the heft of his sword, Dinga flailed down. The blow was swift, brutal and strong, crunching through flesh and bone. He split the raider's skull, releasing a mass of blood and brains. He waited for the other raider to reveal himself. Suddenly he cursed himself for a fool. He felt lured into the jungle, where even during the day, huge shadows loomed. Something shifted along the corners of his vision. A blur of motion. The woman had vanished. The shadows congealed, cutting him from the most direct way back whence he came. A low wail erupted along the forest floor. A wisp of spirits, engulfed in darkness, coalesced in the form of a fat beast, bulbous like a tree frog. The shadow creature spoke in a language older than men, a spirit thing enthralled to an unseen master. Its claws struck through the shadows. A hot, wet gush of blood fled Dinga's side. Its touch defiled him, mocked him. Its slow, lumbering movements parried his. Dinga ran, pushing his way through the underbrush, each movement sending a hot spike of pain through his side. However, he wasn't going to face this shadow beast on these terms. He entered a glade where the forest merged into the grasslands. His trail cut short by the sheer drop-off that emptied into a ravine. The creature staggered wildly, weakened by the seething sunlight. Dinga stopped at the cliff's edge, waiting on the creature's slow approach. When he sensed that it was within range, he turned with an impetuous ferocity, shoving his upthrust spear into the beast's belly sending it tumbling down the ravine. It may not be dead, Dinga thought to himself, though there was one way to make sure. Cut the head from its master. Clutching the wound on his side, he plunged on. Running proved to be torturous. He soon spied the movements of the surviving raider. The raider pursued its own course, oblivious to it being followed. He ran with ape-like lopes to the rear wall of Gen Genot, scaling it with ease. By the time Dinga had reached a good vantage point, he neared delirium. That was the only explanation for what he saw. Discerning the shadows, the raider he trailed halted at the grove. His skin hardened, took on a waxy complexion. Cracks formed along his face, smooth features giving way to flattened crags. Its flesh molded and hardened until it completed its transformation, assuming the form of another totem. Onyame, take their hearts, Dinga swore. With that, he passed out. When he awoke, Dinga's keen eyes studied the shadows. 
he planned his entry through the thin grove of totems etched against the night sky. Ten horses bedecked with gold-embroidered fabrics surrounded Bida's pavilion. Though silent as a cat, Dinga felt the sting of his lacerations as he moved. However, neither weakness nor mercy dimmed his eyes. His blood was up, his muscles twitched beneath his skin. He snuck into Bida's quarters. Sons of a vassal Ghana stood to his right, resplendent in their splendid garments and hair plated with gold. At the door, dogs of an excellent pedigree strutted with collars of gold and silver, each collar studded with matching balls of each metal. Coming into full view, Dinga grinned with painful effort. He helped himself to Bida's wine. Bida glared at him with baleful eyes, then dismissed his court with a wave of his hand. The men scattered, leaving the plates of their interrupted meal. Dinga approached the lapis lazuli steps that led to the massive chair with jewel-bedecked arms and high back. You've returned, wayward son of the Saniki. I have unfinished business, pretender chieftain. I am no pretender, the high priest smiled. I am Bida, the Eternal. Ghana for now. Once I secured the uncle-nephew relationship, after that Ermine had but one further use to me. What was that? Dinner! Bida picked clean another bone from his plate, sucking loudly for emphasis. Dinga quaffed the remainder of the wine. I dispatched your raiders. They, too, served their purpose, stirring up fear in the people and collecting my sacrifices. The villagers proved more tractable, increasing their dependence on whoever can guarantee protection. Look out the window. What do you see? A farmer, foraging for scraps? Some Berber. If I wanted, I could lend him my aid in turn for sacrifice, and make him into the ruler of a mighty nation. I have no use for magic. What problems I have can be solved with my sword arm. Bida rose, growing in stature even as the shadows deepened. Dinga choked back the cry that sprang to his lips, in a mix of horror and near panic. Surely this had to be a trick of the mind. He met Bida's contemptuous stare. The red rage welled up in him. He ground his teeth until his gums bled. His head swam, the roar of war chariots echoing in his ears. Shadow talons raked across his chest, sending him tumbling backwards. He withdrew his sword. In his travels, too many myths had shown themselves to be realities. Thus the old, often conflicting legends about the age before man, the rise of Nephilim, and the power of the Dark Lords of Kaw-Kaw. Surely his magics were no match for Dinga's iron. His quick eyes and sure feet allowed him to scramble out of Bida's grasp. Dinga possessed an unusually wiry strength and agility, leaping to the back of the high chair to face his foe. Dinga cleaved the robed figure at the neck. Bida erupted into a ball of flames. His essence, what remained of it, took to the sky. Dinga followed the display to the front of the pavilion, staring transfixed. Among the gathered onlookers, he eyed Ifriquia. A brief smile passed between them, then he turned away as if called. He locked his gaze to the horizon. Without straying, he clutched his spear, leaning on it, then marched through the parted crowd. And thus he departed, his eyes forever fixed on the horizon. The old Griot spoke for almost two hours. The Ghana's court dispersed slowly at the close of his tale, as if their blood had congealed. The Ghana left, his thoughts all his own. Only two figures remained. Okamfo approached Jobo. You risk great offense, Okamfo said. What do you mean? Ghana Menin is a Berber. I know. I am both fool and truth-teller, Jobo said. People listen or not, as they will. Dinga Cease truly was a man who walked a lonely path, and carried a heavy burden, Okamfu said. That is the way of leaders, and heroes. There are others who walk such roads, but cling to the shadows. I pray that I didn't offend you, Jobo said, hoping to spare himself any harsh words. Not at all, storyteller. Okamfo adjusted his gold serpentine bracelets. I merely wanted to congratulate you on a tale well told. What a corker of a story. Many thanks to Mr. Broaders for letting us use it on the show. And now, on to our second story. 
It's a delightful little tale called Ten Things I Know About the Wizard by Stephen Resnick Tem. Mr. Tem is a past winner of the World Fantasy, British Fantasy and Bram Stoker Awards. His most recent novel is Blood Kin, and his most recent story collections are Celestial Inventories and Here with the Shadows. You can find out more by following the links on the Triple F. It is narrated for us today by Sean Hayworth, who makes a living in Northern California as the world's least interesting filmmaker. In his spare time, he plays music, does magic, and plays probably too many role-playing games. You can find his video cast, Fire in the Garden, by following the link on the Triple F page, or you can follow him on Twitter. Here it is. Ten Things I Know About the Wizard by Steve Ransick Tem. 1. That he has a beautiful daughter. Clarence first met Amanda in the marketplace when she stole several fruits from his vending cart. He'd been completely entranced by her, her long, silky black hair falling loosely to her shoulders, her narrow face and full lips, and her eyes like emeralds on snow. He was watching those eyes when he should have been watching her hands. It was only as she started to turn away that he saw her slipping the fruit into the front pockets of her dress. He stood in complete bewilderment a moment. By her clothes, she'd seemed well off, before jumping over the side of his cart and bounding after her, heedless of the fruit being spilled and retrieved by eager passer-by behind him. The girl was fast, and Clarence had a difficult time of it, just keeping her fleeting form in sight. She seemed to know well the lanes and back alleys, surprising for someone of her bearing, and it took all of Clarence's experience not to become lost himself. But finally she made a wrong turn, and Clarence found himself face to face with the beautiful maiden, her back to a dead end, he had her. But she smiled much too engagingly, he thought, for a thief caught in the act. He stared at her for some time. She examined him with those emerald eyes just as intently. Clarence knew how to handle the ordinary thief. He had a great deal of experience in the marketplace. But he had no idea how he should speak to a lady, even if she were a thief. "'You took my fruit,' he finally blurted out. She merely smiled and nodded. "'You didn't pay!' She laughed out loud. "'But why?' he asked. "'Why? I was hungry,' she replied in a soft and musical voice. 2. That he has a very unusual daughter Clarence spent the following weeks with the maiden, whose name was Amanda, in considerable mental and emotional confusion. He was never quite sure what she was thinking or what she meant by some of her bizarre statements. "'Where do you come from?' he would ask her. "'Past the moon and beneath the tavern floor,' she would reply. "'Such nonsense!' But he found her utterly fascinating. He couldn't control himself. He couldn't stay away from her. Clarence found himself constantly afflicted with aches and pains acquired during Amanda's escapades. She was prone to marked swings in mood. One moment she might be laughing with him and the next screaming. He could never predict how she was going to react to anything he said, so any indication of a mood shift made him anxious. It soon became obvious to him that Amanda had grown fond of him as well, even though she complained about his inability to talk back to her, to be more forceful. She wanted to spend most of her time with him, she said, and despite her strange ways, he felt the same. "'But my father is a wizard,' she told him, "'and you must meet him first and impress him if we are to marry. That may prove difficult, Clarence, my love. He is a strange man, but he is, of course, responsible for my existence,' she laughed. Clarence didn't know quite what to say. 3 that he lives in a dark, secluded house by the sea. Clarence could not fathom the materials the wizard used to build his house. They seemed to be an amalgam of contradictory substances. The house was part of a granite cliff with trees and other vegetation so mixed in that they appeared to be part of the structure itself, 
A large cypress melded into the roofline. A boulder formed the central portion of one of the countless chimneys. Clay and steel and cement supported one of the outside walls. There were circular doors, rectangular doors, and triangular doors. Vines covered some of the oddly shaped windows and uncovered others. Strange animals nested in the oddly angled nooks and crannies. The lines of perspective appeared contradictory. And one section of the house seemed impossibly dark, even in the morning light, as if that section of the house had been fashioned of night itself. It had taken them two days' journey to get there, and Clarence had wondered the entire time why it was worth the effort. Amanda complained about her father constantly, how he attempted to control her life, how he had adamant opinions on almost any subject, how he inflicted silent rages upon anyone who dared disagree with him. But when Clarence had questioned their going, Amanda had lashed out at him with unexpected viciousness. "'Because he's my father!' she had cried. "'It's for me to decide whether to visit him or not!' So they'd made the trip. Through wastelands and mysterious, dreamlike landscapes Clarence had never known existed. The wizard was indeed isolated. There seemed to be no other dwellings as far as the eye could see— Clarence couldn't understand why anyone would even want to live out there. "'You grew up in this place?' Clarence asked as they stood below the wizard's cliff dwelling. "'I did,' Amanda said quietly. "'I don't understand. Who were your friends? Who did you play with as a child?' She turned to him with a slight frown. "'I didn't have any friends,' she said flatly. Any companions I had my father made for me out of dust and swamp water. With that, she turned and guided him to the steep staircase climbing the cliffside to the wizard's house. 4. That he is very old The wizard sat behind an immense table piled high with books. He was difficult to see behind the dusty volumes, only a purple-sleeved arm at the side now and then, white and fish-like hands, or the top of his head nearly bald and intricately veined. "'Father,' Amanda said with a nervous edge to her voice. There was no answer. "'Father, I've come home to visit. I've brought a friend.' Clarence heard a chair scrape, a dry cough, and then a small wizened figure crept around from behind the table. Clarence relaxed a bit at the wizard's appearance. He seemed to be only five feet tall or so, and quite frail. Who could fear a man like that? But the wizard suddenly straightened up, his back unbending, shoulders broadening, head pulling erect so that he was quickly over six feet in height and fixing Clarence with large, bloodshot eyes. Clarence stepped back and allowed Amanda to approach her father. This is Clarence, father, my friend. The wizard stepped forward out of the dim light so that Clarence was able to see his features more clearly. His skin was so white it appeared to be luminous, his bald head like an oval of light. What little hair he had was white and cropped closely, making a band above his ears. He also had a short white beard which covered his chin, his eyes seemed terribly mobile in contrast to the rest of his features. His mouth was a rigid line. Although his features did not in and of themselves seem ancient, his entire aspect was one of incredible age. Clarence sensed that the wizard was the oldest creature he had ever met. The wizard did not speak to Clarence. "'It has been a long time between a visits, Amanda,' the wizard said to his daughter." I... I have been away. For the first time, Clarence saw Amanda avert her eyes in embarrassment. He had never thought before that she could feel such a thing. There was an awkward silence, during which Amanda seemed to be struggling to find something to say. Her father waited impatiently. How has your health been? she finally asked. Well enough, he said. Then... You may spend a few days here, Amanda, but I have my work and will need solitude thereafter. He turned and left. Amanda stood there quietly, and Clarence could not approach her. 
5. That he is a shapeshifter. That first day in the wizard's house proved to be a long one for Clarence. Amanda was sullen and irritable with him much of the time, and the wizard seemed to be ignoring them. But when he had questioned Amanda about her father's absence, she had lashed out at him. "'Open your eyes, can't you? He's watching us both constantly. He doesn't even make an effort to hide it.' Clarence looked where she had pointed, but saw nothing but an untidy pile of clutter. "'Where? I don't see him.' "'The mouse! The mouse, you fool!' Clarence stared. There was a mouse there, a small gray one. It wrinkled its nose at the two of them, then scurried into a small hole in the debris. "'Your father?' "'Of course.' 6. That he is not really bad, just arrogant. Clarence saw many other animals, and one time a small dwarf with an immense red nose, all of whom seemed to observe him with a bit too much intensity, a bit too much interest for normal creatures of that type. He began to feel watched constantly. Amanda told him there were no pests or animals of any type in residence at the house normally. The wizard used a charm to keep them away, so any other creatures or personages found there were the wizard himself. Clarence encountered a cat, a dog, a small wren, a caterpillar, a spider, a cricket, and a moose, which he was startled to discover in his bedroom one evening. In just his first two days in the wizard's home, he became particularly careful of his actions when he was around Amanda. This angered Amanda greatly, and twice she pulled Clarence close for an embrace when one of these creatures was in the room. Clarence sputtered and tried to pull away, a nervous eye on the creature. "'Coward!' Amanda screamed. She began hitting Clarence across the chest. "'Spineless idiot!' But the rest of the time she was distant, preoccupied. She seemed to want to have little to do with Clarence. The wizard did not do anything which might have been called bad. Even Amanda's many complaints about her father did not seem to add up to the evil man Clarence had first visualized. The wizard was merely headstrong and arrogant. He was daily exposed to the temptation of great power, and obviously he often gave in to it. He enjoyed using power, and used it extensively. Who could really blame him for that? So many, like my father. They start thinking they're gods in their old age, Amanda had said to him, but as far as he could tell, the wizard had not gone that far. One of the wizard's most disturbing amusements was his habit of producing ghosts from the past, either replicas of Amanda's childhood companions he'd manufactured previously, or figures from Clarence's own childhood. Clarence felt as if he were constantly dreaming, confronted daily by his long-dead parents, the pet lizards he'd once owned, his long-dead sister's three-year-old self, and assorted young friends mostly long forgotten. Amanda's ghosts were a bit more exotic. A giant spider with bright red eyes and eighteen legs, a large, fat, jelly-like creature with one thick leg, two sets of Siamese twins— a large bird with a bell around its neck, and a few a bit more disturbing, a hideous deformed head that talked, a small subhuman which bled from its ears constantly and impossibly, and a furry creature which screamed piteously in constant pain. Amanda was on edge, her eyes darting, her hands dry and raw from rubbing them together. Clarence could not understand why the wizard— whom neither had seen for more than a few minutes in his true form, would do this to his own daughter. What was he thinking of? 7. That he has a separable soul. Clarence discovered that after several days he was growing increasingly angry with both Amanda and her father. The wizard was needling him almost constantly, sending all manner of apparitions into his room to disturb him and the wizard's presence was almost constant. Many times Clarence did not know whether a particular presence was the wizard in disguise or one of his manufacturers. So surprisingly, he found himself talking back to Amanda with more fervor, not letting any of her small jibes pass him. He had actually expected she would like him better that way, of course, but that wasn't her reaction. "'You're getting to be just like him!' 
she screamed at Clarence. You have an opinion about everything, and you think you're the only one who knows the truth. One day, Clarence and Amanda sneaked into the wizard's study when they knew he was out in the woods. It was unusual for him to be away. He spent hours here, working long into the night with little or no sleep. The study was an immense, drafty chamber filled with books, manuscripts, odd statues and carvings, jars full of substances, preserved animals, and all sorts of mechanical instruments. Clarence did not like the place and wanted to leave, but Amanda wouldn't permit it. I think he's keeping some important secrets from us. I want to find them. She began to rummage through all the strange articles. Clarence stood watching nervously. Then he heard a bird cackle and jumped. He sought the source of the sound in the darkness. It's only Janelai, she said, chuckling. When Clarence still looked puzzled, Amanda grabbed him by the hand and pulled him into one of the corners. She lit a small candle, and a yellow glow illuminated the objects there. A bird sat in its nest atop several old barrels and large books. The column looked unstable, but the bird seemed content enough. It had a long neck and a bright green head. Ragged purple feathers protruded from its sides helter-skelter, looking as if the bird had been in a serious accident. Amanda walked over to the bird, clutched its neck, and pulled it roughly out of its nest. A silver egg lay within. See, Amanda gestured with her other hand, Janelai guards my father's soul. His soul? Many wizards are able to remove their souls, Amanda said. They hide it somewhere, as in this egg. You can't destroy a wizard until you find the hiding place of his soul, actually. It makes them almost indestructible. But why does he leave it in such an open area? Someone could come in here and steal it. He moves it to another hiding place periodically, although there has been no need of late to do so. No one comes here any more. My father is not an active enough opponent for anyone to want to kill. Clarence looked at the egg and shuddered, imagining it falling to the hard rock floor. 8. That he is in complete control. On the fifth day... Clarence discovered he could not leave the wizard's house. He'd simply wanted some fresh air, then found that there were no more doors to the outside, and that all the windows were bolted. When he went to Amanda to tell her about this, she shrugged. "'So, what did you expect?' she said. As a child, Amanda had once told him, she'd thought her father could do anything. He'd always seemed to know what she was thinking, and when she misbehaved— She'd believed that he had paralyzed her because she'd been unable to move with the consequent fear. He knew what was right and wrong and had the power of life and death over her. He was in complete control. There was no escaping him. 9. That he has a test for me On his last day at the wizard's house, Clarence woke up on the floor of a great, dark hallway, a place he had never seen before, he stood up and began to walk down the length of the hall when the walls started to shift, sending him scrambling madly to avoid being crushed by the moving stone. He found himself in a small room, with the walls slowly closing in on him. He had to move the heavy table around quickly so as to wedge the walls apart. Suddenly, the floor dropped out from under him, and he found himself on the table and sliding down an immense stone ramp where the floor used to be. He had to leap off before the table smashed into the wall at the bottom of the ramp. Then all the creatures he'd met from Amanda's past began chasing him, and no matter how fast he ran, he seemed to get no farther away from them. Suddenly he was in the same long corridor he began in, but the walls were lined with pictures now, and as a floating ball of light descended by each one, he was able to examine them. They seemed to be several pictures of Amanda, a picture of the wizard, and one of another woman whom Clarence had never seen before. 10. That a wizard's daughter is hard to love The wizard was suddenly at his side, seeming impossibly tall. My wife, the wizard said, gesturing toward the picture of the unknown woman. My mother, he said pointing to one of the pictures Clarence had thought to be of Amanda. Clarence started to protest involuntarily, 
but he was able to control himself. Amanda, the wizard said, pointing to the next picture, and her sisters. He swept his arm across the length of the hall. The descending lights illuminated countless other portraits, all looking exactly like Amanda's. The wizard turned to him. I never knew my mother. My father was a great magician who took her away from me. But still, she did not have to go. She did not have to leave me. Each time I have lost Amanda, one such as you has brought her back to me. I keep remaking her, her companions, and yet she is ungrateful. Still, she leaves me. Clarence ran through the hallway, through the corridors, up winding staircases. The wizard put nothing more in his way. Clarence did not slow down until he reached Amanda's door. He heard her crying within. He opened the door slowly. Amanda was playing with her companions, the small subhuman bleeding, the little furry thing crying, the deformed, bodiless head talking with maddening animation. Amanda was beginning to fade, as her companions were beginning to fade. Somehow she looked older even as she began to disappear, but Clarence could not be sure. He remembered what she'd said long ago. He is, of course, responsible for my existence. And then she was gone completely. A gray mouse scurried out from under the bed, staring at Clarence as it wiggled its nose. Then it became a ferocious-looking silver cat that ran out the door screeching. Clarence knew that Amanda would soon be appearing in the room again, a new and different Amanda for the wizard to love. But he did not wait. What a wonderfully creepy story. Thanks to Stephen Resnick Tem for letting us run it. And that brings us to the end of another show. Please remember that Farfetched Fables operates under Creative Commons 3.0 license, which means you can download the content and share it around, but no changing or selling it. I hope you enjoyed the show. That neck feeling a little looser, is it? Good. I'll be here next week, same time, same place. Until then, take it easy and keep smiling. Bye now. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.